We've been through this for several years in a row now, and like every year, it still comes as a shock. Like you go outside and the air is so bad, and it's sort of like you know you shouldn't be outside. Yeah, well, and, and like you can see it, the air will be red. It's like it's out of a movie or something. It's yeah. really incredible. Yeah, the air is red. There's ash falling out of the sky. Oh my God. There's a sense that it just for several weeks out of the year becomes close to uninhabitable. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. This week, all those fires. You just heard from Farhad Manju. He's an opinion writer at the New York Times. And he's talking about what we've all seen these last few days. The smoke. The temperatures are starting to increase today. Uh, The winds are starting to pick up. The flames. Strong winds and dry conditions could ignite new blazes. and Those creepy, creepy orange and red skies. Entire towns have now been wiped off the map. It's been a rough time out west. It's fire season right now. And this is one for the record books. In California alone, this year, more than 3 million acres of the state have burned. For perspective, that is 10 times the size of a regular fire season's burn. Multiple fires are still active. Thousands of homes and buildings have been destroyed. And this historic devastation, it is all over the West. Oregon, Washington, not just California. Right now, it looks like there is no end in sight. So later on in the show, Farhad and I will talk about how the West, particularly California, it may not be such an ideal place to live anymore. But first, we're going to talk to a California resident who had to flee her home recently because of those fires. One of the neighbors came and she said, she's like, I know you're new here. I just want to let you know, you know, they're making um, everybody evacuate. We're leaving a little early and I know you have kids. So that's the day we evacuated. That's Monique Perez. She lives in Napa County and she lost her home to one of those fires up there last month, just about two weeks after moving in. But Monique says even though her house burned down, she is going back. So when you think of Napa, you might think of wineries and big houses and fancy cars and rich people. But Monique has a different kind of story. She's a single mom to two kids trying to make ends meet there as a caregiver. And this is the second time Monique has had to evacuate from this area because of fires. The first time was back in 2017. So what first brought you out to that area? You know, I mean, there are lots of places in California to live. You've you chose a place that has uh, had some bad luck recently. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, um, I'm from Pittsburgh, California. I know it probably sounds really dumb, but I never even heard of Napa. I didn't know there was such thing. Um, a friend came out here and she got a really good job for this cleaning company. She was managing it. So she mm-hmm. took me under her wing and hired me and we were doing that cleaning. And then I just fell in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like it's beautiful, wide open spaces. It's kind of nice <laughs> when it's not on fire. Yeah. And I had no idea of the fires or the floods or any of that. Really? So there's floods, too? Yeah, we have floods here as well. Yeah. My Lord. OK. So then what happened to your home in the midst of the fires? It's completely burned down. Um, all gone. I visited a few times and try to go through things. And it's just it's really hard. Monique, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, with all this going on, you sound so calm, cool, and collected. I would be throwing something right now if I were you. I mean, like, emotionally, how are you? Um, Good and bad. I mean, like, I'm upset that the house burned and, you know, all the things that I worked for, but it's mostly the memories that I can't get back, like the pictures that aren't on the Internet or 
my great grandma's blanket that I had from her before she passed away. It really feels like, uh, I don't know, like someone passed away almost like that hurt. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm used to starting over. So that's not the big issue. It's just the things that you can't replace. What makes you used to starting over? What do you mean by that? Um, I've been through the foster care system and all that stuff. And so I had to start over a lot in my life. Yeah. Is starting over because of a fire harder than starting over in the foster care system? Um, I can't really say because it's kind of like you lose everything every time going through the system as well. Like I was never mm. able to hold on to my personal belongings or to the friends or the same schools or so it's similar. I, I, I feel like. Oh, man. Are, uh, will you go back to the same area? Um, yes, we're still here in now. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that hear this interview and say, Monique, I sympathize with you. You've got a sad story. But why in the world are you going back there after fire threatened your house once and then took it away this time? I, don't, I just feel I feel like it's home out here. I, and this is how I want my kids, the way that people are out here and how genuine they are. That's what I want. My, I want to install my kids and I can't install that by myself. It has to be more of a community based thing as well where I do come from, I didn't see any of that. You just see, you know, drugs just right outside. And I don't want that for them. It's just, I guess, stubbornness too. You know, but home is home. Home is home. You know, there are so many folks after Hurricane Katrina who said, I am going back to New Orleans no matter what. Home is home. Yeah. Um, what is giving you strength right now? My kids. And it's kind of give and go. Like today, actually, I remembered like um all their stuff from elementary school and kindergarten that I'm not going to be able to replace for them to see when they're older and stuff like that and I just started crying yeah when you hit those moments where you cry what pulls you out of it I don't know I just just tell myself I'm not a punk I <laughs> know <laughs> you are not you're definitely not and I definitely don't want to set that move for my kids either especially if my daughter is struggling with some type of emotions towards it that she's not showing me I don't want to put more on her. Yeah. Yeah. And then we make jokes. Terrible. How do you? Okay. Give me an example of one of these jokes, <laughs> please, Monique. I want to know. Our family is terrible, <laughs> like literally. But um, my daughter, she told my cousin, she was like, yeah, you see that smoke in the air? That's my house. <laughs> just, <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really bad humor. <laughs> hey, you know what? You got to do whatever it takes to get through it. I live it. Well, Monique, I tell you what, you're an inspiration, and I really wish you all the best. Thank you. I appreciate you guys taking the time to reach out. Thanks again to Monique Perez. She lives in Napa County. So on top of the wildfires raging in California, 2020 has seen massive heat waves and rolling blackouts and poor air quality and rising homelessness in California, all on top of the pandemic. My next guest says all this stuff together. It is, quote, the end of California as we know it. But where? Uh, I'm in Mountain View, California, which is, um, you know, south of San Francisco and about, I don't know, 10 to 15 miles from one of the huge fires. Actually, less than 10 miles from the, one of the big fires, which is uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains here. Why does Mountain View sound familiar to me? Is it? It's where Google is based. 
<laughs> okay, okay. You're in you're in the belly of the beast. <laughs> yeah, I'm in I'm in Google Land. Uh-huh. Farhad Manju is an opinion writer for the New York Times. And a thing he writes about a lot is whether his home is actually a good place to live. Uh, there's a few pieces I want to talk about that you wrote, but last year you had an op-ed called It's the End of California as We Know It. And I never stopped thinking about it after I read it, I swear to you. Uh, in part because all of the reasons that you outlined pointing to the quote-unquote end of California, they are still here, and they're perhaps even greater in 2020. Can you lay out again the reasons that you think this Californian dream might be ending, besides the fires and the smoke and the ash. Yeah, I mean, it's a really paradoxical thing, which is we have been really economically successful over the last, you know, 10 years. We really weathered the Great Recession well. Um, and, you know, the, we're at the center of the tech industry, which has done phenomenally well. And yet living here just feels like the most one of the most sort of unlivable, unfriendly places oh, no. uh, <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> you know, it's gotten, I don't mean unfriendly, like the people are, are unfriendly. I just mean sort of like the policies and the way, like housing is just incredibly expensive and keeps getting more expensive. And then you have to sort of deal with traffic. It's just kind of like you would expect that one of the more successful places in the country would be sort of have, um, uh, plans for like making the area more livable. Yeah. So we know that in 2020, the coronavirus is making all of these endemic Californian problems worse. But before the coronavirus, were California leaders and the Californian population, were they doing good things to solve these problems, to fix things like the fires and blackouts and homelessness and air quality and affordability and traffic and everything else? Um, you know, in I, I don't want to say that they haven't been doing anything, but I think that for the most part, most of the leaders and many of our citizens just sort of don't want to recognize like fundamental things we will need to fix. This is like from everything from like the amount of time we spend in cars, the fact that like we build sprawling areas with single family homes where it takes a lot of energy and time for people to travel between. People sort of, you know, built California with this expectation that we would have like endless resources, like gasoline would yeah. be cheap forever and, you know, we'd have endless land to build and we're running up against real constraints and like we're feeling them now. Yeah. Well, so this is a line in your piece that really stuck with me. You wrote, quote, the founding idea of this place, California, is infinitude. Mile after endless mile of cute houses connected by freeways and uninsulated power lines stretching out far into the forested hills. Our whole way of life is built on a series of myths. The myth of endless space, endless fuel, endless water, endless optimism, endless outward reach, and endless free parking. Wow. When you look at it that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the, yeah, just the amount of land that we devote to parking is like obscene. So, yeah. you know, if we could build houses on all the, that space, if we kind of changed our, you know, a lot of people in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area, they think of their cars as like, you know, just kind of a birthright of being a Californian. And 
I think those kind of deep cultural attitudes will have to change at the same time as, you know, our physical infrastructure changes or we, um, you know, try to, in other ways, like address some of these problems. Yeah. Well, and perhaps the biggest Californian ideal and dream that you write that we might have to let go or at least change in our minds is this idea that every Californian is entitled to a single family home with a yard. You know, when you talk about the problems we're facing now with housing affordability and even wildfires. We have a lot of Californians seeking out a Californian dream of a big house with a yard. They're building too close to the woods where the fires happen, right? Mm -hmm. And all of this desire to have so much space is pushing people further and further out of cities, giving them longer commutes, making traffic worse. I mean, is the biggest fundamental problem in this list of Californian problems our desire to hang on to this idea of the white picket fence and the house in the yard? I mean, I certainly think so. And a lot of urbanists, people who sort of think about how the landscape should be better used, think so. But there's also this, you know, very competing like uh, narrative from people who love their single family houses who say, you know, that's how life in California should be. Um, And you know, if we decide that that is the Californian story, then it's going to necessarily mean, like, exclusion. Um, I'm really intrigued with this idea of the Californian dream and this idea of pursuing suburbia, particularly in California, in the midst of the 2020 race. We have seen politicians on both sides of the aisle talk a lot about suburbia and suburban moms, and the right is talking about preserving suburbia. It's almost as if they are having a debate over, in part, what is the Californian dream. How does it feel to see suburbia itself become a central theme of 2020? Yeah, it's, I mean, in some ways, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I do think it's something that people on the left have shied away from because there's a lot of wealthy liberals who live in suburbs who like them but and don't want to kind of change that. And then Republicans, in Trump especially most recently, has been pushing this idea that like the suburbs are going to change in a way that is going to, you know, lead to their abolishment. There's, you know, severe kind of racist undertones, uh, more than dog whistles in the way that he's talking about it. And I wonder, like, I, I don't know, partly because we don't know what the election results are, but like, I don't know where the suburbs will land. You know, the suburbs at the uh, more recently have been much more multicultural, more to the left. And the suburbs were sort of like responsible for the Democrats' 2018 um, results. And like, I can't say that his um, kind of like racist vision of the suburbs is not going to sell. Like it, it could work. Thanks again to Farhad Manju. He's an op-ed writer at the New York Times. All right, coming up, comedian Sam Jay. She taped a comedy special recently for Netflix before the pandemic. And then it came out just a few weeks ago. She talks about laughing in the before time and what's changed. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Sometimes food is more than just food. It's an integral part of the community. 
So this year, Discover is giving $5 million to support Black-owned restaurants, to places like Post Office Pies in Birmingham, Alabama, Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia, and hundreds more Black-owned restaurants in your local community all across the country. Learn how you can show your support at discover.com. I'm Lisa Hagan. And I'm Chris Axel. We're the hosts of No Compromise, NPR's new podcast exploring one family's mission to reconstruct America using two powerful tools, guns and Facebook. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Join us for the No Compromise podcast from NPR. So a lot of you may know that I watch a lot of TV. And I've noticed this really weird TV thing happening right now. Watching new movies and new TV shows drop on platforms like Netflix now. After those movies and TV shows were filmed in the before times, before coronavirus, before protests, before the fire season out west. So much of the new stuff that we're watching these days, it seems like a time capsule from the before. One of those time capsules from the before that I saw recently and really enjoyed was a comedy special from a comic and SNL writer named Sam J. It's called Three O'Clock in the Morning. And it was filmed in Atlanta in early 2020. You honestly couldn't be black and gay outside of Atlanta until 2012. (laughs) It just didn't exist anywhere else in the world. In this special, Sam does not talk about coronavirus, does not talk about all the protests of this year. But she does talk a lot about her girlfriend and gender roles and a thing a lot of us are not doing a lot of right now, international travel. When I talked to Sam J earlier this week, I had to start there because, honestly, I miss planes so much. Also, a warning, listeners, Sam J curses a lot in this interview. The part of the special about you and your girlfriend going to the UK, you talk about how y'all are taking this trip abroad and you're packing for yourself. She's packing for herself, but she is just like bringing too much stuff and you're like I'm not gonna help you uh it it just really cracked me up yeah I mean I didn't say it that nicely but yeah (laughs) everything was going good we was packing she was packing I was packing everything felt respectable but then she started packing a third bag and that really confused me because she only has two arms so I was like how you packing three bags with two arms baby girl you don't got enough arms for the bags you packing what a presumptuous bold move to pack bags you don't got arms for who's supposed to be in charge of these bags being in a relationship and seeing the dynamics and just seeing the times like you know because i am masculine of center and and i'm kind of living in this duality or like you know intersection of 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 gender identities i guess and like the times when i do want to feel more in the masculine space but then there's these times when i'm definitely more in the feminine space and just like what that is for a relationship and how my girl relates to me and how I relate to my girl is just something that actually just personally makes me laugh. And so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like it was it was funny, but it was also like getting at how like this way in which like you're saying you are kind of contradicting gender roles and staying outside of them and almost above them. And like it's funny, but it's interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's just really how I feel. You know, there's just, it's for me, it was already frustration because I had told her not to do it in the first place. I said, I told you a better <laughs> way to do this. And now you're struggling and I'm supposed to step in and be some type of like, 
masculine hero, and I'm not going to do that because I told you, and I have my own bags that I got to care about. (laughs) So, I mean, figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the harder-hitting jokes that you make in the special is about how once you and your girlfriend get to the UK, y'all end up at the British Museum. And you're in the museum on shrooms, and you just have this epiphany. You're like, oh my God, all of this stuff is stolen. I walked in, I was like, holy shit. Because it was wing after wing after wing of stuff, and it blew my mind because I was like, wow, white people stole all this Stole so much Yeah, it's weird because, like, I, um, the joke came out, and, um, then someone had pointed me out to a, a British comedian who had made a very similar joke. He starts with just like white people going out and plundering the world and what that was, you know what I mean? And he builds mm-hmm. it in this other way. And then he's like, and then it all ends up in the British Museum. And I thought it was uh, so funny that as a person, a dude who has a whole different walk of life than me, you know, and comes to the conclusion in a different so- series of steps. Yeah. Damn, this Which is means crazy. It's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know real. what I mean? Like, yeah. damn, this is crazy. Like, you and I, I mean, it was truly just one of those things where I don't, I don't, I never, you know, you know that this stuff is stolen, but then they present it in such an unstolen way. You know what I mean? <laughs> that you don't, <laughs> you don't yeah. think about it being stolen. It's not like it's in the back of a truck. You know what I mean? It's not like, hey, psst, I got a Mona Lisa real quick. Check it out. It's like, it's on display. It's in a big building. And I think that's why I kind of made that point. Like, they build a fortress to it that if you want to understand like white tyranny and, oppression globally like here it is yeah i was particularly impressed by the way you really delicately offered critique to the me too movement uh well actually not delicately just funnily Um, i kind of want to offer some setup for this for our listeners before i can ask some questions about it Uh, you had some beef with the me too movement I don't know if it's beef as much as it's just you see things and then you just have observations of how things aren't working or why it doesn't work for me is really what it is, you know? Because white women act like they're, like, it's a brand of feminism and it's theirs and that's the most dominant. And they act like they're about all women, but it's like you're not. You're only about white women. And that's fine. You can't even be about all women because you haven't even taken the time to figure out all women need. You just know your white woman needs and you assume if we fix your it'll trickle down. And it's like, no, I think especially when you grow up a, a, a bit disenfranchised, you know, and you grow up mm-hmm. living amongst some level of poverty where you don't see a lot of opportunities for yourself. And I think a lot of times that's the thing that, like, uh, these these movements, when they are appropriated and completely taken over by, like, white agenda, you know, whether that's white men or women, I think that they forget that there is this, this space where people were already living like this and living like this because of, their skin color and like like before I think about being uh treated differently because I'm a woman my first thought is they're doing this to me because I'm black that's my first thought mm. yeah I've I've been raised since young to know that that's probably the reason you know what I mean so with that I was also raised with this sentiment of like you can't allow what someone is going to do or be to you to determine who you are going to be. And you can't allow what someone has because I'm growing up in poverty. So someone's always going to have something over me. You can't allow that to dictate how you're going to act, behave, and your character. And to me, that is the most powerful thing you can give any disenfranchised person is 
that you have a choice no matter what that you well, can and like, choose. Yeah. And I just yeah. felt like in the Me Too movement, a lot of talk of job, power, and position was used and not a lot mm. of talk of uh, these women could have also made other choices. And that doesn't negate that the men are terrible in these situations. Mm. But when mm. you preach it as if it was just nothing you could do because there's this big, powerful mm. man, what well, is always going to be a big, powerful man. Mm. somewhere yeah and that's just what i was taught as you can't think about that with white people right there's always going to be a white person somewhere with more power than you that may try to manipulate you or control you but you can't give into that you have a choice samaria you can do something different yeah hearing you talk about this i i find it really interesting like your perspective is just as powerful in this interview as a little more serious as it was in the comedy special as jokes. When did you decide that your lane for your word and for your message and for your ministry would be comedy and not something else? I don't know. I just always loved comedy. <laughs> okay. You know what it is? <laughs> I feel like ministry is this thing where you just come off and you're like, I know everything. And like... Mm. I'm this higher ordained thing and I, I have been not and I don't feel that way about myself. I just feel like the world's really crazy. Stuff is yeah. wild and I think about this stuff this way. And I would just like to share yeah. that with y'all. You know, I'm not here doing research before I make a joke. I'm just like, oh, I feel this way. Maybe some other people yeah. feel this way. That's it. Yeah. Speaking of not doing research, I'm gonna ask you to stick around for just a few more minutes. Uh, I want to play a game with you. It is called Who Said That? It's a quiz game where you're not supposed to prepare. Great. That is coming up next. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, who makes shoes, socks, and undies that are not only comfy, but also carbon neutral. Their average carbon footprint per product is equal to running five dryer loads or driving 19 miles in a car before it's offset to zero. They measure these things because you can't reduce until you know what you produce. With Allbirds, feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at allbirds.com today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Some days, reading a bunch of headlines just isn't enough. You need to let the news sink in. On Consider This, NPR's new daily news podcast, we can help you do that. Each day, in about 10 minutes, you can find out not just what happened, but why and what it means. Consider This, new episodes every weekday afternoon from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, your host, here now with another Sam, Sam Jay. She is a comedian, an SNL writer, and uh, she has a new special on Netflix that you all should watch right now. What's it called, Sam? Three in the Morning. Why is it called that? I haven't asked you that yet. Uh, Because I just felt like that's when I made it. 
I just feel like that's when I was up late at the cellar arguing, riding around in a cab after a set, like thinking about my jokes or arguing with my girl because I've been all, all night doing comedy and unavailable. You know, I just felt like that's where yeah. it got made. And I didn't want a title that was like, pissed off, you know, <laughs> Sam J is upset. You know, I just didn't want any of that. Although, now that you say that, Sam J is upset, has a nice ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, let's play this game. Uh, I play it every week with my guests. It is called Who Said That? Ooh, Who, said that? Who said that? Who said that? The game is quite simple. I share with you three quotes from the week of news, and you got to tell me who said it. It's really easy. I'll give you hints. And no matter what, you're going to win because it's just you playing. All right, you ready? Yeah, ready. Okay, here we go. First quote. We've decided as a family to end this very special journey. We are beyond grateful to all of I you know who who've watched it. us for all of these years. Who said it? Kim Kardashian. She did. She did. So the Kardashian clan is ending their show after 14 years and 20 seasons. Keeping up with the Kardashians is ending uh, in early 2021. How do you feel about that, Sam? Good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why? Good. We need. They need a break. I need a break, and I'm a Kanye fan, and that show almost killed Kanye. So, good. Oh, yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Hard reset for Kanye. Yeah, need that. I will say, it's like, I always felt like they never got the respect they deserved for just being shrewd business people. Oh, no, people. no, I agree. Like, I, I'm a very pro-Kim Kardashian person on that front. Yeah. Like, as far as business and then, like, bringing her whole family on. That's and like stuff. Yeah, and in a real way, creating something out of nothing. You know what I mean? Like, out of nothing I really, but a bad sex date. And before that, I think people just forget that, like, Kim was out here doing fashion for hip-hop yeah. dudes. She had the closet business and, like... She was just in around the industry in these very like service type of ways for a while, and to turn that into what she did is like real fire. Yeah. All right. You got one point. Next quote: "You can't tender your way into a long-term relationship." Who said that? Dang, I seen that too. A former first lady. It was not Michelle Obama. Yes, it was. Yes, yeah, I've yes, seen that recently. Uh, she has a new podcast on Spotify, and she was interviewing Conan O'Brien about the ups and downs of marriage. And she said in this interview, you can't tender your way into a long-term relationship. But, like, actually, that's not true. <laughs> you I can. mean, I feel what she was saying. But, yeah. How so? Meaning, like, it just doesn't feel like a real way to meet and know people to a person that met and knew somebody in the world. <laughs> so I get How'd it. you meet your girlfriend? I met my girlfriend in these streets, like a real person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I met my ex on Tinder, and it lasted for long uh, enough to maybe call count. it long term. That don't count because you said ex. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, you, okay, that makes okay. it right. All right, you got two points. Last question. This is going to be hard for you. I'm going to give myself half a point for the Michelle Obama thing because I wasn't confident. you have. I wasn't okay. confident, and you had to give me a clue. Okay. All right. 1.5 points for Sam J. <laughs> Last quote. Can you imagine telling Picasso what had to be in his effing paintings? You people have lost your minds. Control artists, control individual thought. Oscar Orwell. I don't know. Kanye? No, it would be Kanye, though. Uh, you know what? Don't guess the actress that said this. Just guess what she was talking about. Rose McGowan? No. Oh, I have no An idea. older actress. I don't know. But 
Oscar Orwell. Oscar. What's the big news about that this week? Oh, it's about the diversity. Like, they're making a, a rule that they got to, like, have at least, I don't know. <laughs> I'll give you half a point for that. This story, uh, well, that quote comes from Kirstie Alley, the actress. She was tweeting about being upset at the new diversity requirements for movies hoping to be considered for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The Academy issued new rules that take effect in 2024 that basically make inclusion requirements both in front of and behind the screen for any film that wants to be up for Best Picture. Uh, she didn't like it. But a lot of folks said, Kirstie Alley, you weren't going to get an Oscar anyway. Yeah, but it's also like, I get why she doesn't like it. Explain. I just don't. I just think that as a person who is a creator, I don't want anyone telling me how to create things, right? I don't want anyone telling mm -hmm. me who I have to create things with, and I don't want anyone telling me how I need to do that. That's part of being mm -hmm. a creator. It, what if I want to tell a very specifically white-ass story? But at the same flip, right, I get that there's this whole level of, like, if you don't force people, they won't do it. And do we, we've consistently been waiting and, and as, as black people showing our talent, right? And not yeah. getting the respect. But I always feel like we fix these problems the wrong way, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, we we yeah. go about fixing these problems by like, now there's these rules and you, you, if you want to be considered for Oscar, you have to have this level of inclusion here and this level of inclusion here. And it's like, yeah, that's a real whack-ass way to go about it when there's just qualified black people and people need to just stop being... <laughs> yeah. I will say in defense of the new Academy rules. So the rules are set up such where a white director could still make a white movie with an all white cast as long as there's some diversity behind the camera. And that makes sense because there's, there's qualified black people to do that. There's qualified Asian people to do that. There's qualified yeah. Latino people to do that. So that makes sense. In the spirit of Kirstie Alley... <laughs> What all-white movie would you want to make all-black as we close this segment? Gone with the Wind. <gasps> Ooh. Yes. Frankly, Scarlett, I do give a damn. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you get extra points just for that. Uh, Sam J., you won the game. <laughs> uh, Sam, from one Sam to another, this was delightful. I enjoyed your special. I enjoyed our chat. Uh, congrats on your Who Said That crown. And I wish you and your girlfriend all the best in the rest of this crazy year that is 2020. Thank you. Thanks again to Sam J. Her comedy special is called Three in the Morning. It's on Netflix right now. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week... Listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Matea from Seattle, Washington. The best part of my week was getting to finish building a 29-foot juvenile gray whale skeleton with some other students and staff at Seattle Pacific University. Hey Sam, this is Zuri in New Haven, Connecticut. The best thing that happened to me this week was I successfully defended my PhD thesis in immunology after six and a half years of graduate school. It also happened to be my 30th birthday that I share with Beyonce, so I officially declared September 4th the International Day of Black Girl Magic. Hey Sam, this is Chris in Lakewood, Ohio, and the best part of my week was yesterday, spending time with my wife and twin daughters on their one-week birthday in the NICU unit. Hi Sam, this is Clinton in South Carolina. 
The best part of my week was telling my friends about my major depressive disorder and then hearing their replies. Mental illness can be very isolating and it helps to know we're not alone. Hi Sam, this is Hector from Boston. What's making me happy this week is that after six months of being stranded alone in South America due to the pandemic, uh, my mom is finally returning back to the family tomorrow here in Boston. It took six months, lots of failed attempts, many video calls and many birthday celebrations together over the phone. Um, and after two humanitarian flights, she will be boarding a flight from Lima to Miami tonight and we'll be in Boston again with the family tomorrow, Saturday. Um, so this is making me really happy this week and we'll keep our family really, really happy for a long time. Thank you. Thank you, Sam and Aunt Betty, as well as the staff there. And hope you all take care. Love the show. Love the show. Thanks so much for your show and have a great week. Ah, shout out to birthdays and black girl magic and newborns and reunions and all those best things. And of course, thanks to those listeners you just heard. Hector, Clinton, Chris, Zuri, and Matea. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment. Just record yourself on your phone sharing the best part of your week and send that voice memo to me via email at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right. This week, the show was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Also this week, our new intern starts, Star McCowan. Star, we're so happy to have you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I hear you've never had coffee before. <laughs> that will change on this show. This week, we had engineering help from Vincent Acovino. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time. I'm Sam Sanders. Stay safe. We'll talk soon.